Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Hayden Miyamoto. He's the founder and CEO, I believe, or are you the CEO of Acquire also? Also CEO, yeah. Co-CEO. I know you have a co-founder there. And you specialize in acquisition entrepreneurship, buying companies. And I'm just, I'm grateful to have you on the show today. Let's just jump right in and talk about how you got into this space, kind of your origin story. I joke often about you were born and then you end up today on a, on a show about acquisitions and mergers. Can you fill in the gap in between? For sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I've been an entrepreneur all my life Mm -hmm. as a kid as well. A lot of entrepreneurs don't do well in school. And I was like that. I dropped out of school at 17. That's sort of when I started my first business. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, it was a digital marketing agency before they did a lot of SEO before Google was even the world's biggest search engine. We optimized for Yahoo and AltaVista. <laughs> Did you do anything for Excite? I know that we were post-Excite. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was I was the director of operations for the technical side of Excite.com. So we have oh, a wow. similar background. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did that probably since then. I've bootstrapped close to a dozen businesses. I'd say maybe one third of them were successful and the other two thirds weren't in, in some way. So not the best hit, right? That's normal. Yeah, it's normal, but it's normal. And it, back in 2015 is when I acquired my first business and I realized, wow, you can like skip over all this product market fit stuff. And so since then I've bought about 30 and we started because my background was in marketing. We started, started more in digital stuff. We bought about close to 20 digital businesses, e-commerce SaaS businesses. And then in the last probably three or four years, we moved over to brick and mortar, but sort of brick and mortar with larger serviceable markets. So you could still take that customer acquisition advantage. Oh, interesting. You started off in the digital space. Now you've moved into the brick and mortar home services. I'm kind of, I was just telling you before the show, I'm kind of doing the other. I used to flip websites before it was even cool, back before there was like Biz by Sell and Flippa and, and Empire Flipper, before any of those even existed. We were hanging out on Warrior Forums, I forgot mm-hmm. what it's called, the digital digital warrior form or something like that. And we would buy websites that were generating income, pay mm-hmm. about two to three years worth of their income to buy them. And then we would increase. So back then there were a lot of these sites that were made for AdSense mm-hmm. and we would go through there, rip through them, clean up the, they were, you'd buy them and they look like early nineties technology, all text and stuff. We put graphics on them, make them nice, give a better user interface to them, switch the advertising out to people that pay more and then turn around and sell them. So we were flipping them. And I got burned really hard because somebody back then it was really easy to spoof all the data. They were just showing mm-hmm. you screen printouts of like PayPal and stuff, what they were making. Somebody got one over on me. I spent 30 something grand for a website and turn around, which wasn't much, but just still enough back then that hurt. 
it burned me on. I was like, I'm just not doing it anymore. Within two days, three days of me buying all the traffic dropped off. So it was all bot traffic and it was like went to zero, mm -hmm. found out most of the links on it were what we call now a, what do they call it when they, all the, you own all the websites in uh, PBM. In PBM. Yeah. 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 So it was basically that I didn't even know that existed mm -hmm. then. You know, I am back then I was a domainer. I had over 3000 domains, mm -hmm. right? I still have about a hundred. But uh, yeah, I learned my lesson on that. So you've done, you went from that world to brick and mortar. And as funny as I went from the brick and mortar owning a mm -hmm. real estate investment group, a real estate investment firm where we bought and sold real estate, sold that to a partner and then basically bought a pest control company and moved into this space. And now I'm looking at digital assets again and partner up with some people and to buy some digital assets. So we, we've got a similar path. Why go from digital to back to brick and mortar. What's your thought process there? Yeah. A lot of it is what type of asset you're buying. And so I would actually say if I was to do a startup, I would much rather start something digital than start a brick and mortar business, right? What we were focusing on was from the digital space was a bit larger than typical. Mm -hmm. um, so it was still like kind of million dollar SDE style businesses and just the way that we were financing them, you have this platform risk that just doesn't really exist on the brick and mortar side, right? So we've been burned probably on three different deals where the thing went to zero. I mean, three out of 20 isn't terrible. And if you take a portfolio approach, it's mm -hmm. fine. But just the way that we were kind of developing out our business, we were more being a minority investor in other people's businesses who were typically taking out loans. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't feel comfortable with recommending a path that they could go to zero, right? I get that. Two or three months later. Yeah, I'm really leery of what I call single source income solution. Yep. So I don't, I'm not interested in, when I say I'm going digital, looking at digital assets, I'm not interested in Shopify stores, Amazon stores, any of that type of stuff. I'm looking for great content that, that goes, that's in alignment with this, like what I'm mm -hmm. doing here. So, yep. and monetizing the content I'm looking for them to already have monetized it some so that it, it's generating revenue. And then I can increase that by better affiliate alignments and associations with better advertisers. But yeah, I'm not looking for that single source. Like it scares me when a single rule change at Amazon can destroy your entire business or Shopify, right? Yeah, we bought one business where Amazon changed their affiliate payouts for a category and it went from 10% to 3% yep. uh, like two months after buying it. And then Google hit the same business the years, so the year and a half after buying it. That's the type of thing I just, again, if you're taking a portfolio approach, you have a fund, that's fine, right? Yep. You can double down on the winners and ignore the losers, but if you're you have a partner whose livelihood depends on it. You really have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I used to hang out in the same kind of meeting, like mastermind type of groups with the guy who had a audio file review site it was hundred percent based on Amazon and it, he was living off. I mean, that was his income. He had a couple of writers. They would, he would buy their products and he wasn't doing video at the time. I think he should have, he was just really writing deep reviews of them, taking lots of photos of it and stuff like that. And then when Amazon cut it, he had to fire his writers. He couldn't even afford to keep mm -hmm. the site up. He sold it for pennies on the dollar, but there's enough of that going on. It's like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also see things like the hustle, right? It's sold to the, uh, mm -hmm. HubSpot for 25 plus million dollars. He never says his exact number from what he said, it's over 25 mil, right? Mm -hmm. So content's still valuable. It just needs to be good content. And that's kind of where I'm looking at in this space. Yeah. hundred percent buying a brand, buying a community, a hundred percent. That makes total sense. I also am a fan of product services and software as a service. It's just, there's a certain, there's like a sweet spot in terms of the size, right? Over a certain size and you're paying multiple in revenue, which you don't really want to do. It's crazy. Uh, but yeah. then 
under a certain size, I feel like all these businesses have this incremental fixed cost of having a separate product manager and a separate kind of marketing manager or acquisition manager. And they typically that business can't afford both of those things. So you end up being swamped and not doing either job correctly. I noticed on your site there, you talk about that you guys do the, provide the capital training and systems. When you say capital, are you actually, have you raised money in a fund and you're using that kind of money or are you actually helping them get loans and know the lending sources? Describe that for me. Yeah. Yeah. Both will either, most of the partners we work with use the SBA just because it's cheapest money uh, right. available. And so, yeah, we will help facilitate that. And so we do have an equity fund. So we'll typically put 80% of the equity in for a percentage, a minority percentage of the deal. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something we can do. Obviously it would have to align with sort of our thesis as well. What is that thesis? You said you know, home service businesses and stuff. Is that like heat and air, pest control? I mean, what are the kind of categories? Yeah. You know, I would say it's more about, I would describe the business as something that provides a kind of a physical product or service with a pretty high average ticket value in a probably 50% ish high margin mm -hmm. to a serviceable market. That's at least hundred miles or more. So that's often home service companies, right? Like mm -hmm. HVAC techs, right. Who will come to your home. Right? right. But it could also be granite manufacturers or cabinetry yeah. manufacturers, same concept. And obviously we like the fact that it's high margin. We like the fact it's high value, a higher value means we could probably mm -hmm. drive longer as well. But uh, yeah, I, it's kind of a weird thing to describe to someone, but basically allows us to kind of take the customer acquisition strategies we've had through digital marketing and expand on them. So many asked me one of the shows is why did you buy a pest control company? It's the funny thing was, is I resisted it for over two years. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my, I have 30 something cousins. I've got a big family and one of them, I only like two or three of them. Uh, if, you're, if the rest of them are listening, they'll know, but uh, most of mine are, my relatives are hoodlums, <laughs> but I've got one. He's just a workaholic. He's really good. He owns his own landscaping business, but on the side, he was running pest control and his owner was going to retire. And he reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, help me buy this thing. Let's just run it together. And I said, yeah, I'm not interested. But when I got it, started researching, moving out of real estate into acquisitions and mergers, I started looking at some of the listings on biz by sell and seeing that these pest control companies were claiming they had margins of 35, 40, sometimes 45%. I'm like, yeah, that's BS. So I started doing the research and like, wait a second, some of them do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so why am I telling this guy? No. And so I ran and we ended up buying the equipment and starting our own because the one that he had for sale after doing the due diligence, it was just too risky. I wasn't following the rules. There's just too many things he wasn't doing. And it's really regulated by both state level EPA, federal EPA regulations on pest control. So you don't want to buy something that's not mm -hmm. keeping records and doing what it's supposed to. But um, the, I got into it not knowing what I didn't know and about something way too small. We got basically a customer list and some equi used equipment, rebranded it, went out on our own. And uh, now, I, like I was telling you before the show, if the text can't get to the uh, the phone system, it rolls over to me and here I am in California answering phone calls for a pest control company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's not where I want to be. So what size do you recommend your people you're working with, people you're in your program? How big are they? What's the target that you want people to look at? The target is between 750 and one and a half million in SE. That's typically sort of that too big for most individual buyers and too small for financial buyers mm -hmm. uh, range. And you hit it spot on, like it took us a couple acquisitions to realize actually the business size is the single most important criteria because there is kind of this fixed cost 
an incremental fixed cost to becoming management run. And that's what we're all really going for, right? right? So we can get out of the business a little bit. And, you know, if you're buying a business that's doing 300, 400K in SDE, and then you pay that fixed cost, you pay your debt service and the business declines 20%, now there's no room to pay yourself, right? And that's kind of starts a downward spiral. Your backdrop there has a has me raising a question here. So you've got a swimming pool in your backdrop. Have you looked at any of these the swimming pool maintenance companies? The reason I ask is I see them constantly on sale. They're not there, but definitely owner operated. Mm -hmm. But there's a roll-up play inside of that. If you have the systems and process where you can train people to take something from management, from owner operated to management run, mm -hmm. those sell regularly for 1X, right? I mm -hmm. see them all the time listed for 1X. Yeah, I know a bunch of people. I don't actually own any pool service or construction businesses, um, mm -hmm. only because when I got into the space, COVID happened shortly after, and this COVID just really messed the entire dynamics of that right. space. So I, I might be interested to start searching now that we have like a full year of kind of post, yeah. post-ish COVID data. But yeah, 100%. I mean, all these businesses have the same kind of challenges, right? So it, it could be done. I would bet money that the pool servicing actually increased Right, because people are home all the time. They're stuck at home and during oh, yeah. COVID. I bet they got their pool service more often if people could show up and do the work. But if you think about it, if I'm stuck at my house and I got a swimming pool in the backyard and I'm not, I'm supposed to be stay at home. I'm probably not staying in the house. I'm probably going to spend more time in my pool. Hundred <laughs> percent. If I was buying based on like COVID affecting the business negatively, that's a great time to buy, right? Yeah. Um, no, in this case, I really think there's like this. You imagine you have this customer's list, right, and you have a list of whatever, 500 people who know about you and who will buy a pool in the next four years, right. right? COVID comes and suddenly you can't leave the house. Suddenly all those people are buying your pool now, right? right? And so it's very difficult to, to know how much of their sort of future demand got yeah. eaten up early, right? Yeah. Well, I was just curious because I, I constantly see them on all the sites and no matter if you're out there looking through and it's like, a, mm -hmm. you know, I do a lot of sourcing. People bring me deals because of the show and people mm -hmm. you know, bring me deals because I seem to know I built a hell of a network of people who are buying stuff. So mm -hmm. I've kind of trained people. If you don't know what to do with an acquisition, you find something that's not, doesn't fit you, bring it to me. Cause if I'm not the buyer, I probably know them. Mm -hmm. I probably know who to route you to. So I get a lot of those type of, Hey, I've got this thing over here. Like I'm, there's a honey distribution company, a little small one. And, and the guy reached out to me. It's like, I think I know somebody that wants that. We're looking mm -hmm. at the numbers on it. If it was closer to me, I might want it. I like organic type of stuff. But that said, when I seen the pool in your background, I was like, I wonder if you ever even looked at that just because the multiples are insane. They're like one X, right? Yeah. So I think if you got it big enough and it's their one X because they're a hundred percent owner opera, I mean, owner managed, meaning you got to go out there. If you buy one, it's got a hundred pools and it takes three days to service it. You better either have somebody already trained to go do it, or you're going to be cleaning pools three days a week. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what they're selling. But if you, like, I don't have the systems and processes. It sounds like the acquirer has about converting something from owner ran to management run. And then, so I was just curious if you put in much thought into that. Thought about it, but never, never executed on it. No. Okay. Yeah. Curiosity. Let's ju jump into some of the, what are some of the things you guys have done? I always call this stage kind of story time. Mm -hmm. um, tell us, you guys have done a lot of acquisitions. You're talking them earlier is over 20, right? So what's the... Yeah. Most recently we've been more into home service. So last year, 2021, we did a roll-up and are still doing a roll-up, but I was kind of co-CEOing it with a, mm -hmm. a joint venture with another company of a bunch of HVAC and plumbing companies. So we bought four companies in that year and kind of, it was my task to go and basically 
make the management run and kind of develop out that operating system for the roll-up. So probably about 40 million in annual revenue between the four. Really interesting challenge, various degrees of sophistication. One of the businesses was actually the largest business, had zero systems in place, zero technology. So that was fun, but a great culture it was so much easier to work with. Yeah, so we've been doing that. We've also kind of taken a minority interest in a bunch of similar businesses, roofing, granite, cabinetry, and a lot of several more plumbing companies. So that's what we've been working on most recently. It's interesting. I've had Adam Coffee on here before, who's got a couple of books out on that. He made his money by taking a heat, heating and air company. And I think they did, I want to say at least five or six times where they sold it to private equity. They kept him on as CEO. So he'd sell like 80% of it, keep 20%. And then they would grow and through acquisition, acquiring others. So he spent a, quite a bit of time growing through acquisition. Mm -hmm. And now he's a CEO coach in that space. But yeah, it's surprised. I think the last sale was over $2 billion with a B. Yeah. You, you can... You can really build something in this space. Now, is it very competitive? Because I know there's some PE firms out there playing in the same pocket. You sound like you're playing right underneath what they would look for anyway, right? You're kind of playing yeah, their radar. That's kind of our goal. HVAC has suddenly become much more competitive in the last two years-ish. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see more firms who are expanding their thesis to target these sort of one and a half, two million dollar EBITDA companies, which means you have to kind of go smaller. I think there's still a lot of opportunity in plumbing. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I like plumbing more than HVAC, depending on the type of plumbing business, but mm -hmm. the heat and air you have, you can put in some recurring revenue in it, like service contracts and maintenance and stuff where the plumbing, it's kind of a one and done, right? If you've got repeat business in plumbing, it's kind of like my pest control company. If I got high repeat business, I'm probably not doing everything right. Mm -hmm. Right. Unless they own, I do have repeat business business because I service a lot of real estate investors and they're buying other properties. So, and they come to me, I know that space. I know them. I'm friends with them type of thing, but uh, I can see in the plumb in the heat and air space, like those filters have to be changed. If they don't, there's service, things get clogged up. Things don't work. What I was saying is the heat and air business probably has a lot of recurring revenue. People come back and need filters change, like need systems need to be maintained and stuff. The plumbing business is kind of a, almost a one and done. If you've got a lot of repeat business. Yeah. True of residential plumbing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think all the strongest plumbing businesses do a lot of commercial okay. and commercial turns into even stronger contracts, like annuity style contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, what I like about plumbing and again, without owning the business, you might might not expect it, right? It's kind of difficult to train up HVAC people, right? It's difficult to train up a tech. And so mm -hmm. there are different ways, different companies work with that. Some people, some people might do HVAC construction, right? And then mm -hmm. the construction can kind of lead into a path where you learn how to be a tech and do service. Right. That, that's one option, but obviously the construction typically is much lower margin work. With plumbing, you can actually treat residential plumbing as a way to kind of train people. Right. And over time you get more into a lot of the commercial service work, which like I said, it's, it can be a lot, a lot higher sort of recurring revenue. Like our little pest control company only does residential. We've been on a couple commercial products or projects. I don't understand how they can even make any money where our bid, the first time we ever bid on one, they came in and said, is this for the year? And I was like, no, that's per month. And we were higher than the combined bids for everybody else for their year. Wow. And it just didn't make sense. Like, how are they paying these people? Are they spraying water? Because chemicals are expensive. My guys do 20, bu 20 bucks an hour. So maybe they're paying minimum wage to their techs. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I did the math over and over again. I was like, I, unless they're spraying water and not paying their guys, 
or they're taking this as a loss leader because one way thing we know that in big commercial spaces we get other deals so if you're walking around spraying an office and they you know the, the workers there could always come in and say hey i'd like you to come do my house too right mm-hmm. uh, it's probably where the bugs came from anyway they probably brought them from home they hitchhike a lot that said i don't know i don't stand how in the pest control basis, the commercial side even makes any money. And it not, at least not in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like, mm-hmm. I, we looked at a 30,000 square foot office building and the guy that was treating it on a monthly basis was doing it for $95 a month, right? To walk the square footage with the equipment, my guys, would it would take them an hour or two. I don't see how they, I don't, I just don't see how it works, so. Yeah, I can't advise on that. We don't know any pest control companies. They, typically, it's hard to find ones large enough in that sweet spot we talked about. Yeah. yeah. I think, is it heat and air the same? Is it hard to find large ones? Because I know a lot of, like, I own a bunch of real estate in Oklahoma, and I know a lot of heat and air guys, but they're usually one. And my family's in that space. My dad's brother, his one of his brother's whole family, he's got 11 of the children. I told you I had a bunch of cousins. He's got 11 children of his own. They're all in heat and air, right? Mm-hmm. But the they don't even work on the same company together. They all have their own little things. It's one and two man, three man shops. Yeah. I mean, they're very competitive when you mm-hmm. find like a business that's at that size. So we, we have like a whole sourcing team that tries to find these off market. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, like most, a lot of people will do these tuck-ins to buy sort of chuck in a truck. Right. Um, right. And it's more of a, we'll buy your assets at fair value, give you a job and better quality of life type of right. deal. Right. Yeah, I know we had some of those conversations where like for the pest control companies, like, look, what's your customer list? If I gave you two years worth of what you pay yourself in the last two years, would you come work for me? Mm -hmm. Right. And give me your customer list and just the math didn't work out just because Mm -hmm. most of them said no, because the only reason they're on their own is they're unemployable, right? Mm -hmm. They're so entrepreneurial. They don't want to listen to what anybody else has to say, which I get it. I'm kind of the same guy, Mm -hmm. right? I want to work for me, but uh, so like in Tulsa, if I'm thinking like the markets I know in that space, I can think of four plumbing companies and two or three heating and air companies that are big enough that would fit your criteria that are not mm-hmm. already nationally owned because it's very competitive. There's probably two or three, there's probably the equal number of those. Like if I said four of each, there's probably four of each that have already been bought out. So there's eight total of big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also... Like they're, they're equal number. They're already been bought out and owned by a national organization. So competitive mm-hmm. space. Definitely. One of the roll-up we did, our thesis behind that roll-up wasn't actually to buy sort of these brand recognized service companies, but mm-hmm. it was actually more buying the construction companies with the thesis mm-hmm. that you could, there's a, if there's a service division, you could build a service business behind it, Right. which we did actually prove hundred percent of those cases, which was nice. So there might be, you might think of four service companies, but you might not be thinking of probably the six or seven different HVAC construction companies that also service what they construct, right? Which typically are unknown to most customers. One of the things I have noticed, and you brought up the same thing, even if they're doing a million dollars SDE or even a, they still don't have the processes and stuff because they grew organically. Mm-hmm. They're what I call accidental entrepreneurs, kind of jokingly call them accidental entrepreneurs. They were good at it. They worked for somebody else. Somebody asked them to do a side job. They did one, then they did two. And the next thing they know, I've got people helping them do side jobs and they own and operate a business. So they don't have any systems, processes, and often not very good accounting systems. Mm-hmm. And you could, I still, I would say even at the $1 million SDE where they're doing two and $3 million of revenue, most of that stuff doesn't exist for most of these guys. Could you give us a, a kind of a high level actionable steps to convert like 
I would at this stage, as far as the way as I am, I would just not acquire something that doesn't have the systems processes in place because they don't have the actionable steps. What would, what, it sounds like you have a, you've done this multiple times and you're, you even train on it. What are the actionable steps that somebody can take at a high level? The commonalities and the types of businesses we target are exactly what you said, right? You have this owner operator who's kind of accidentally and organically grown a company to the size. It's typically bulging at the seams, right? And typically these companies have, I would say between let's say 20 and 40 employees. And that's a really weird sort of awkward growth phase because you're still too small to have any kind of executive layer, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about like an efficiently run organization, you have sort of the lower level customer facing might have managers who should ideally manage seven to 10 of those people each. And right. which means that at about 50 people, you have enough room to say, okay, efficiently, we can have a, an executive, right? And at 250 is kind of when you have a layer of directors that report to a CEO. In this case, you have this one owner operator who's in charge with every executive function in a company, right? And I would say the most important functions um, in any company, regardless of size, is you know, financial strategy, capital allocation, right? Scalable customer acquisition, right? So your demand size, how do you carve out market share? Not mm -hmm. just wait for a demographic to grow. And then recruiting, training, and retention. So the supply mm -hmm. side, right? And I would say most of these owners do not do either of those three at a passable standard, right? And so there's just no best practices in place because of it, right? And they're too small to afford to hire someone to do each of those things, right? Typically HR divisions that don't exist in companies under about 60, 70 people. Right. So what we kind of do is there's this concept of like the magical GM, right? And everyone's like, oh, I'm just going to hire a GM, but you're really just recreating the problem again, except now you're recreating the problem with a person who's not actually incentivized as an owner, right? And so what we've done is we kind of have three different roles, right? So mm -hmm. one is what I call a people and culture role, which is the equivalent of an HR division, but with a mm -hmm. lot of the cultural initiatives that a CEO might normally have. We have someone who's in charge of finance and revenue. And we, again, we have all the systems and process for all this. And then we have basically the acquisition entrepreneur is the CEO. And we kind of have these job descriptions and deliverables around that and have this leadership team that kind of runs the business. And so the transition to get from, you just bought a business, you're creating a succession plan with the seller. That succession plan is probably typically like a nine to 12 month plan where all of their core responsibilities are transferring to these typically three to four people on our leadership team, as well as you're delivering, seeing new processes. Typically takes about a year. So when we do an integration, we call it an integration. Mm -hmm. It's usually an eight to nine month long engagement. And kind of the deliverable behind that is the company now must have, must be able to create its own goals, right. And, you know, manage through OKRs and all these other things. Right. right. And then has to have like very strong communication protocols in place, one-on-ones, performance reviews, et cetera. Everyone has to have a job description. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously we have this people and culture person, this sort of financial and revenue person and the CEO each doing their job. And when that happens, you know, that, then you can finally be sort of board run. So who runs the sales on that? you have a different sales organization or? Yeah, typically it depends on the business, but if it's a sales driven business, then that would be part of the leadership team as well. Okay. So you have a CEO, CFO and HR kind of, but you got, you have different titles for them and stuff. Yeah. Cool. Now that's why, and then the, 
that actually makes sense because if you're looking for something with a million plus mm-hmm. uh, SDE, you have to have and decent margins. Mm-hmm. You have to have room to bring that team on prior to you know, the red, a 50 person mm-hmm. company. That's another thing is that HR rules and guidance all change when you hit the 50 first employee, right? Yes. Like there's different standards and rules and all those other stuff. I got to hang special posters up and everything. I get it. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I would say I estimate the kind of fixed incremental fixed cost is mm-hmm. typically around 150 K a year. So like when I sort of help people design models and stuff, the company always loses money the first year, right? It's not just suddenly growing. Typically in almost every case that is actually hiring a new people and culture person, which is kind of like an 80 K ish a year mm-hmm. position with benefits and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then often these companies are still too side, too small, unless they're a construction company, they're too small to have their own finance department. So usually it's like a fractional CFO. Yeah. Fractional. Um, yeah. And then let's say another 30 K ish and sort of just systems, right? No. ERP. And then what's the end game for most of your clients? Are they buying this to own it, operate it and be a holding company and like own this for a long time? Are they doing roll-ups, acquiring a bunch of things with the intent to sell it? Or are they flipping businesses? There's so many different strategies inside this space. Yeah, a little bit of everything. I'd say most people are interested in the whole co-model. And typically I find like your ceiling kind of changes once you have run one business and kind of brought it to seven figures. You're like, what's the next thing for me Mm -hmm. to develop as an entrepreneur? And often it's like, get into the whole pose sort of private equity side. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're an accelerator for acquisition entrepreneurs. So that means we actually go through the entire process. So not just finding and buying a business and training someone on that, but also helping them integrate and grow them. Then finally, once they kind of get out of the day-to-day, helping them buy more if that's their goal, and then helping them with sort of a, a tax-optimized exit um, mm-hmm. if that's their goal. Obviously we're not, we're only three years old, so we haven't gotten to the point of a tax optimized exit, but we are sort of looking at business number two for a couple of people now. So. Okay. I was curious as I've seen on the thing that like the, you listed a bunch of different stuff on your website, as far as the exits, mm-hmm. exits, like exits to private equity, ESOPs and IPOs. I'm interested in that just because the, uh, you have to be pretty good size for the IPOs here in the United States. I know some people that are going IPO on other markets. They're going to like Frankfurt and exchange and stuff. Uh, but like I was talking to a couple of people on the show and it's between 700, it's, it can be as much as, or more than 750 K to do an IPO yeah. for legal expenses and, and all that other stuff here in the U S to whereas on other markets and other exchanges, it's 35, 40 K. So that's a significant difference. Yeah. You know, there's, I participated in a couple, so we went through the, a long process for one of our older companies, the one that did the digital asset roll up to go mm-hmm. public on the TSXV in Canada, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of this reverse merger process. Mm, right. One of the many markets where you can kind of do this faster, cheaper IPO. I That whole experience, I think we got probably 80, 90% of the way there. And I decided we're too small for this. I think we were doing like 5 million EBITDA or something. Right. And we kind of pulled out. And my opinion now is I would only do it the kosher way directly on a strong US listing. Right. Uh, and it, I would estimate it would cost it probably double what you mentioned. Yeah. So um, 1. So, 5, yeah. Yeah. I've talked to some guys I know that have acquired one of the guys on the show. So I won't call them out by name, but one of the guys that's been on the show, they've done 40 plus acquisitions or over a hundred million dollars in revenue. They did the Frankfurt exchange and the problem they're having is liquidity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They listed, yeah, they can buy companies with their stock, but the owners, there's just not a lot of volume on their stock because they're kind of still a, it's a version of penny stock. So when somebody wants to sell, 
and get some, take some cash off the table, take some equity off, even though, even if they're wanting to stay, if they want to sell some of their shares to, to buy that summer home, the liquidity, it really impacts the company. I think yep. they even have a 12 month high, like when they sell, when they become part of that company, there's a 12 or 18 month window where they're not allowed to do an exchange. Mm-hmm. So I could see that. I was just curious. And then the ESOP, the employee stock option plan, that's kind of what I like the idea of is buying, like doing a roll up and then selling it to the employees and having annuity for your retirement, like having them, having the installed stock plan pay you over time. That's something I'd be really interested in. Yeah. If you sell 30% or more, there's a lot you can do with sort of that, that deferral, right? Of capital gains. For me, the ESOP's the most interesting. We still haven't actually set one up, though I have a bunch of people, friends who've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, what really got me excited in this space and was actually the size of the opportunity, right? And that's kind of one of the reasons also we moved over to brick and mortar was I realized once I actually understood the demographic problem, right? That the US is facing, um, I realized, wow, this is like a $10 trillion opportunity. And there's an opportunity here as well to like, not only sort of assist with this transfer of wealth, but also to kind of redefine business as you do it. So our motto that we use internally for our goal is to, by 2035, we want to point a trillion dollars towards good. And we'd love to create a fund where there's governance in place that reduces the cost of capital for anyone within if they're hitting certain standards around employee ownership, mm-hmm. et cetera. So we talked a little bit before the show and you gave me a great idea to reach out to the SBA and score and stuff. So I started that process this morning. I'm going to try to get them here on the show. We'll see what they do. But uh, what do you see currently? Like, I see some limitations inside of what they have right now. Like I know you can do your first acquisition. It takes from their website. I'll tell you, they can do it fairly quick or whatever, but I know people that have been through this over and over again. I know I've interviewed probably five, maybe six experts on SBA and the closing process. A fast one's 90 to 180 days, like Mm -hmm. to go through the jump through the hoops and stuff. What could the SBA do? or, Or it sounds like you guys use a lot of SBA loans too what's the positive side of it other than low interest? What is the positive side of it? And what's the, like the negatives, what could they fix? Yeah. Positive side, more important than the low interest. I mean, it's not that low anymore with interest rates as they are, right? It's like 8%, right. but say it's, it's actually the incredibly high loan to value ratio, which is interesting, like 90, 90 to 5% technically. Right. Right. Uh, and it's the amortization, right? So if you're looking at, let's say mezzanine debt, or you're looking at these other capital partners in this mm-hmm. space, you're typically looking at like 70% LTV and you're typically looking at like 15% interest rates in like five year, seven year terms. Right. Right. And so you just don't have a lot of space. You have to be buying at two X multiples in order to make any money there safely. I'd say that's the biggest benefit. The negatives is it's a bureaucratic nightmare, right? Banks also are they will often just kind of change their terms on you <laughs> over and over again. So that that's also, it's just an irritating process Yeah, and it is a lengthy one. And so I, I don't think I've ever seen one close in 90 days. Uh, we closed one this year where it was about four months from sort of issuance of LOI to close the business, which is probably a record. You do it with like certain preferred lenders, it's faster. Yeah. A lot of people don't get that the lender has a lot of say in that. So SBA has a certain criteria, but they're other, every single bank does two things. One, they have their own criteria they set on top of the SBAs because the SBA is only guaranteeing, I think, 75% of that loan, right? So that's all it is. It's a loan guarantee. The bank's loaning their own money 
the only thing the SBA is doing is saying if they default, we'll insure 75% of that loan. And some of these guys that have done a lot of deals, the SBA doesn't even look at it until there, until there's a default and then they'll review that one and others. They're incentivized mm -hmm. to get them right. But uh, the other thing they do is if you really get into this, a lot of these banks won't tell you they specialize in certain areas, but they do. Mm -hmm. Like so I always tell my guys, if you're thinking about doing an SBA loan, ask, you're talking to your local branch, your local bank, ask them how many of your, if like say you're wanting to buy a heat and air company, like, yeah, you guys do a bunch of SBA loans. So cool. How many heat and air companies have you helped fund the acquisition of? And if they don't say something to the extent, oh yeah, we can do those too. You might want to look around because they, whether they tell you they do or not, most of these banks have a sweet spot that they love to loan in, that they understand, mm -hmm. and you can go to the next one down the street. So that's the other thing. I'm sure you're aware of this. If one of them tells you no, it's not a no. It's basically not them. So you probably ought to go down the street and talk to another SBA lender because chances are, if you read the SBA guidelines, you're probably within them. It's the local bank's guideline and their board that told you no, not the SBA. Yep. Yeah, we have a 100% hit rate in terms of converting partners who want an SBA loan to an SBA loan, but that might have been after going to two, two or three banks in some cases. Right. right. Every bank has a different underwriting criteria. Like I said, sometimes they'll just change it on you all of a sudden. There's one other negative that I should probably mention for people listening is that certain structures you just cannot do with the SBA. Mm -hmm. And this is actually one thing I think the SBA needs to improve or change. And so they do it in order to protect themselves or make sure that a lot of the companies, yeah, just to protect themselves from fraud, right? But certain things like the seller can't have any retention, right? right. No um, minority purchases, no more. Yeah. 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 No, no holdbacks, right? Like there, there are certain ways you can have like earnouts and holdbacks and like you don't phrase them as such and this, they can still get improved, approved, but you try to do that at scale. And you, like you said, when someone investigates, you might default, you really don't want that. Because of that, you're kind of looking at, oh, and the, the seller can't be involved for more than 12 months, right? right? Which to me, again, is like, if you want, if you really want continuity, why would you put this in place, right? right. I don't like, yes, I understand there's possibilities of fraud, but there's also large possibilities of default here <laughs> if the business fails. So right. yeah, so looking into what's kosher and non-kosher with the SBA is important. And there's, so that's one of the, if I ever get them on the show, that's one of the things I'm gonna hit pretty hard because there are quite a few retirement aged CEOs or owners of small to medium businesses who need to or want to sell, but they don't want to be not doing anything, mm -hmm. right? They want something to do. And I think there's a great opportunity here is to buy 80, 90% of a company and then let that CEO hang around and do what he does best. Take all his best clients out to dinner. Like there was one we were looking at. And if you looked at how he built his business is he plays golf with everybody in town and almost everybody plays golf with is his client. I don't play golf, right? So if I acquire this thing, I either got to take up golf or find a new source of, of lead generation, right? Mm -hmm. But I, was, I started talking to him and it's like, I was like, what do you want to do when I retire? He goes, I want to play more golf. I said, what if we do something along the lines of like buy 80% of it, leave 20% on the table and you keep taking these guys to, to, to lunch? The trick is you, their mentality has to be right. You got to get over their ego a little bit, but for the right guy, there's a huge opportunity the SBA is kind of shutting the door on in that space. Yep. Where, and, um. A lot of these businesses, the reason they fail to close, and I've interviewed close to 100 people this year. At the end of the year, I'll have interviewed over 100 people. And one of my favorite things is like, when deals fail, why do you think it's, it fails? And the answer more often than not is the owner changed something at the last second. Mm -hmm. And then I brought a few people in here, like Denise Logan and stuff, who's 
specialize in the psychology of the seller, right? She's, she got a the psychology degree, a law degree, and she wrote a book on this whole subject, but it's not seller, it's pre-seller's remorse, right? They, mm -hmm. they get to the closing line and they go, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do next, right? Mm -hmm. I think the SBA is killing that off because if they can hang around, if they could do something, if there's synergies there and they can be managed, like they can report to somebody that not be the owner, that there's a question, a big if there in my mind anyway. Uh, I think they're hurting themselves and we've got a problem come up here. You and I were talking about this before the show, uh, that trillion dollar opportunity. I, I think there's a number like 51% of all businesses in the United States are owned by somebody at 65 years and older. They employ almost over half the workforce. And all those businesses, the next next gener two generations are going to have to change hands one way or another. Mm -hmm. And the SBA is the number one source that most people go to do it. So if they don't, if they don't step up and change their game, I don't think the SBA is handled, equipped at this process to handle that volume. Yeah, I mean, operationally, they certainly aren't. And so th their solution to any problem is basically throw money at it. Right. And so that's what they've done here. And that's what they did yeah. during COVID. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that's enough. Or if you're going to do it, you can't accompany that money with all these restrictions. Right. right. And I, you, we're already seeing like, they're about to pass something that like FinTech companies can have start giving out SBA loans. They just change it now where there's no guarantee fees on like seven, a loans under 500 K no upfront fee and no annual guarantee fee. So they're definitely making moves in the right direction. So if you're concerned, oh, will the SBA still be, will they run out of money or something like the 504 loans that they won't? If you could change one rule, I mean, you've done a bunch of these deals. If you could change one rule in there that would give you the most power or change one thing, what would it be? For me personally, I would just like some clarity in truly understanding their guidelines around specifically minority rights. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me personally, but if I'm thinking more for the utilitarian good of all people <laughs> buying businesses, I would say... Yeah, it would have to do with, I would say, seller retention and seller involvement, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think a third to all that, I think you brought up two great points there. The third one would probably be time to close, right? That uh, the sell cycle in normal business speak, from the day we present your paperwork until the day that business changes hands, cutting that down from 90, 120, 180 days to something more reasonable, even if it was like mm -hmm. 60 days. A lot of times these businesses... We'll sell at a discount. Like I've not, I know people that will line up cash and buy businesses at a big discount because the owner just can't hang around for another 180 days waiting for the SBA. Mm -hmm. I think it's more likely that in the next, you know, you mentioned kind of a couple of decades mm -hmm. that there will be sort of these BDCs that come out with the equivalent of, and this is one of the things that we're working on mm -hmm. uh, with the sort of tax equivalent of REITs, right? That will start doing these tiny micro deals mm -hmm. uh, and they'll start be providing SBIC funds mm -hmm. as opposed to SBA funds. And I think we're going to see more coming out of that than the SBA directly. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting concept, like a REIT real estate investment trust for acquisition of small businesses. Yep. So if you look at BDCs, they have pretty much the identical tax structure to a REIT mm -hmm. and BDCs can be SBICs, or you can have them sort of in parallel where the money comes from the SBICs, which is basically coming from the SBA, but not through a Explain the acronyms yeah. there, because this is a new realm. I don't think I've heard of the BBCs before. BDC, I think, stands for Business Development Corporation. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, they, basically, if you look it up, it's just a structure of company that kind of allows you to only be taxed once on a C-Corp if you're dividending over 90%. So it models, basically models a REIT. 
Okay. Uh, and then the SBIC is you have to pass the, the test and become a lender, but they basically give you multiple dollars for each dollar raised. Mm-hmm. And it basically comes from the treasury as well. So interesting. Yeah. So you think that's going to, I mean, in order to solve the problems before us, things have to change. You think that's a couple of changes that are going to come down the pike? Yeah. And I think that's not really an SBA change so much as people being entrepreneurial and seeing the size of the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if the SBA doesn't fix it, somebody will, right? We're all entrepreneurial yeah. money. You know, and there's a lot of dry powder sitting out. There's a lot of money that's not deployed just because they can't find what they're looking for or whatever reason. So seeing this opportunity and making sure that getting the word out about it's going to change the landscape. So, mm-hmm. so before we jump into kind of how to reach you and stuff, where do you see everything going in the next four or five years? I mean, we look like we're kind of at the beginning of what could be a, another re- recession. And a lot of people say we're already in it. Some people say we're almost there. What do you see that impact in the acquisition entrepreneurs? I would say we're in a recession. We just don't have the data to <laughs> state that yet, but it's an interesting time, right? Cause unemployment's really low. I'm not a, I'm not a fortune teller here. I would say in this, in these types of times, I think there's better terms that buyers can have on businesses. So I don't necessarily see, I, I see it probably a more difficult time to raise funds and do sort of some of these larger rollups. It's just going to be much more expensive to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think, I don't see it impacting sort of the individual buyer. Certain business types that are more recession resilient. So either recession resilient businesses or which I sort of typically will say either you know, they'll sell something that requires some kind of license and you can't DIY, you can't do it yourself, but still basically solves a really active, urgent problem, right? Like you live in Phoenix and your air conditioning goes out. Those businesses will be much more competitive, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there will be opportunities for businesses that have like high asset values as well. So you can kind of hedge against the recession risk. Right. And then certain businesses that have zero moat and basically are not solving an active urgent problem will not be able to sell, right? I wouldn't buy a landscape, a simple landscaping business or a simple house painting business, right? Because you lose your job. That's the first thing you're going to do by yourself. I grew up as a painter's son. My father was a painter and I actually, that was my first, one of my first businesses at, mm-hmm. at age 16, my father decided he was going to step back and let me do it. So I actually helped run the painting company, kind of give you a scale of things. In our busiest summer, we did 187 jobs, so probably. Some of them were inside and outside, so probably 150 houses. Like, and when I say summer, it's a painter's summer, right? Like, I always mm-hmm. say summer, and then I realize it's not really summer. From in Oklahoma, when spring hit and we could be outside painting, it was warm enough the the paint would stick to the walls, right? Mm-hmm. Early spring when it's not freezing at night, to late fall when it's when it's like the same scenario. It's not getting too cold, so it's not just summer. But in that window, it's probably six months out of the year. Actually, seven months out of the year, we did 187. So that was a we ran a decent crew. And the funny thing was, is I decided I'd never, I've never painted a house since actually not, and I own real estate. I, once I set the paintbrush down and joined the military, it's like, I'm just not doing that ever again. So I don't know if I'll ever own a painting company for the fear I might have to pick up a paintbrush. <laughs> and I know yeah. more about it than most people. I, in my summer job from the time I was 16 at the time I joined the military at age 20, I worked at a paint manufacturing company. We made paint. Like mm-hmm. I poured the stack paint up on the shelves and watched people pour it and mix the latex and the chemicals and all that and make it. That's where my dad got most of his jobs. He worked the sales counter at the paint company in town and he mixed colors for people. And like, like they would come back and go, I don't know how to put this on. Anybody can paint it. He goes, yeah, I'll do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
Uh, and I get it during the recession, it doesn't happen, but kind of like, I like the pest control, the heat and air and stuff. I don't care what the economy is like. You got bugs crawling through your house. Your wife's going to want somebody to come fix it. Yep. Right. If your plumbing's not working, the guy might go outside, but the wife, if you're married, you're fixing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I own a bunch of real estate, so I won't say it's always fixed because I've got houses back and I'm like, how in the hell are they living here? This thing has been clogged for, it looks like months. It's nasty. But you know, for the general uh, stasis of it, that was single guys. It was never, there was never a married couple living, not never. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a horrible thing to say. There were times, but usually that thing was taken care of if there was a family in there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I get the recession proofness of that. And I, so that's plumbing and heat and air is the same way. So even in Oklahoma, it gets there in the fall, it gets 108, 110 degrees. You're fixing your, your AC, right? Or you're putting a window unit in it. You're doing something, right? You're not. Our little tiny home didn't have heat and air because we have a private valley in Oklahoma. When we first bought it, we moved beside a lake in Texas and we thought, we're by the lake. It won't be bad. Man, we went and got something right away. Whatever mm -hmm. Texas heat hit up 110 and we even, now we're by a lake and it's humid and, <laughs> right? I get that. What else is, what other industries do you think would be kind of recession proof? I think of things like, even like liquor stores and liquor and stuff, people are going to, in bars because... People drink when they celebrate and they drink when they're depressed. But uh, other than, and I don't involve with anything like that. I try to stay away from personal vice type of stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, vices obviously always tend to do well in, in recessions, but yeah, I'm the same. I stay away from it. Th there are certain spaces, like you, there's so many different spaces. You really have to look at it, right? Appraising companies will do well when, when things are booming and will do well when things are in recession as well. So your granite countertop company, probably not so much though, right? I mean, like. Yeah, that's why I mentioned you can hedge against it if you have high asset values. So that's one of the things you look at is, okay, if this business comes with the purchase price is 4 million, but it comes with $2 million worth of equipment slash inventory, at, you could probably, if a recession hits, you could probably turn that around even at a discount and make a lot of your money back. So right. then, you're, then you're looking, okay, well, if it drops 50% of recession, but I can do this, I've hedged myself a little bit. I've bought a lot of carpet and a lot of granite <laughs> over the years. Right. So yeah. I owned a real estate investment firm for a while and we put stone countertops in a lot of houses, not always granite, but stone of some sort, mm -hmm. uh, even concrete, but uh, countertop businesses and stuff. So I get that. Yep. We're getting close to the top of the hour. Let's talk about Acquira and like, what do you guys do there? If somebody wants to work with you, how does that work? Yeah. So we have an accelerator. And typically that's people who are looking to buy their first business, or sometimes if they already own a business, buy their second business. And that's, it's a training program slash community. And if anyone sort of wants more information on that, they can go over to our site, which is acquire.com slash accelerator, and they can kind of apply there. It takes a few minutes. You can have a conversation with some of our emissions team, see if it's a good mutual fit. And then we also have the ACE program, which is basically an acquire a certified enterprise. So that's sort of that management run operating system. And uh, yeah, if anyone owns a business or wants to know more about that, they could probably just have a conversation with me. I'm always interested in talking to people about it. And my email is just Hayden at acquire.com. And in general, if yeah, people just want to kind of shoot the shit about the space, I'm happy to, <laughs> to talk to people. It's always fun to meet other people in the space. Awesome. And then, so you already mentioned like how to reach you on your email and stuff like that. It, let's do the, let's do the wrap up here. If somebody could remember two to three things from the show and about you on this show today, what would you want them to remember? What are the key takeaways? I think if you've never bought a business before, I think most people are focusing on kind of that first mountain in front of them, which is finding and closing a business. And they're not even aware that there's a much bigger mountain once you climb to the top, which is actually integrating it and running it. And so I would say, start looking into 
that, start looking into like various types of operating systems, so to speak, that exist simplest to something like EOS or traction. Yeah, I love uh, that. A much more complex one would be scaling up. We've kind of built our own that is specific to a certain size of company. Um, mm. I would say that's one big takeaway if you've never bought a business. And then if, if you're interested, I guess another interesting takeaway just from this conversation is just the size of the opportunity in the space. So if you're ambitious, this is genuinely a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. And if you ever want to talk about that, I'm also willing to chat. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm, uh, mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I jumped in this. I actually hired a, a performance coach at some point and said, hey, I thought I was burned out in the real estate space. So I actually hired him to like help me clear my head and see if I was. Because I thought I was like this stage, like, am I burned out? Or is this like, because we were doing foreclosures, is the marketing just tightening this? This isn't, there's just no route to profitability with what the strategy we were using in the space. One of the things he said during that conversation is like, man, you should be playing a bigger game. So I started looking for a bigger game. It's like, I don't want to do apartment complexes. I've been, I was coaching a bunch of other real estate investors. I'd already talked them into going into that space. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to compete with all my friends, right? These guys, mm -hmm. like they're out there looking for these deals. I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm better at marketing than most people. I don't want to like out-market them and take deals out of the people that are my friends. So I stepped above that into this space. But uh, there's a hell of an opportunity here and uh, there's, I'm a blue ocean guy. There's enough room for all of us. There's mm -hmm. no way one small group could acquire and fix this problem. There needs to be a shift in the marketplace to where entrepreneurial minded people are looking at things to buy as opposed to things to build. It's hard because our natural instinct, I battle with it daily thinking of ideas I probably should just create, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you have that create, once you're that creator it's and you like to create things, it's hard, but there's just so many out there right now, so many opportunities to buy. I think it's a mistake to, to build. Yeah. <laughs> I look at this kind of like it's an ecosystem, right? So what, what needs to exist in the ecosystem for this problem to actually be solved? Because mm -hmm. the problem will solve itself. And there's an opportunity for anyone who wants to be kind of a leader in that ecosystem. But you look at REITs, right? Mm -hmm. You look at where REITs were even 30 years ago, maybe have like $2 billion in assets under management, right? And what were the things in the last 30 years in the ecosystem that needed to exist to then create where we're at now, right? And how can, what are the parallels with small business ownership? When you think about it that way, you can start thinking about, like you said, a bigger problem, right? I am really one of those people who thinks if you're going to work on something, you better may as well work on something really big, right? right? Your likelihood of succeeding is probably similar in each so. You could go out there and spend your whole life trying to build a, a million dollar company and mm -hmm. you'll eventually get there. I think that's doable by most individuals on this planet might take you your first 12 tries to do it but or you could go buy one and this within a 12 month period acquire a 12 to 18 month period find one acquire it and own a, a million dollar company but i love the idea that there's a greater play here the whole reit style investment mechanism for buying small businesses i want to appreciate having you on the show today i think we had I think, a great topic so we'll call that a show all right. Thanks so much for having me. Hang out for a second afterwards and we'll, uh, we'll wrap that up. Thank you guys. Thank you. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. 
Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.